What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. This is The Exchange, and we are waiting on President Biden. He's set to speak any moment now on the Russia-Ukraine crisis. As tensions in the region intensify, you can see the market uh, back towards session lows here. The White House calling Putin's latest troop movements an invasion, specifically choosing to use that word. Of course, we're going to bring you the president's remarks as soon as they begin in a couple of minutes' time. Quick check on the markets shows the action today. We opened after that deeply negative futures session last night, turned positive for the S&P and NASDAQ within about half an hour, and now we've sunk lower as uh, the afternoon plays out. The Dow's down 443 or 1.3%. The NASDAQ down a similar percentage, and the S&P down 1%. Now, oil prices are hovering around the 92 $93 mark right now, 93 on the nose, in fact. That's a 2% gain. Nat gas up about 3%. Flight to safety sending gold to nearly a nine-month high. Gold's now up for seven straight days. Different story for crypto. Lower across the board with Bitcoin down again. Late check there shows 37 and change uh, is where we are at. But let's start with the president set to speak on Russia and Ukraine. Our Eamon Javer standing by with more on what we can expect. Eamon? Well, Kelly, as we wait for President Biden, we have also been hearing from President Putin in Russia over the last hour or so. Putin said his country is recognizing an expanded version of the two breakaway regions in Ukraine. Now, he's using definitions of the borders of Luhansk and Donetsk from 2014, which would include a key port city with access to the Black Sea. Russia says it's also now going to evacuate its diplomatic staff from Ukraine. And we're hearing from a senior administration official here in the U.S. that the Thursday meeting between Secretary of State Tony Blinken and Russia's Foreign Minister Lavrov is now in, quote, real jeopardy. And that means that any sit-down between the two presidents is also unlikely at this time. Meanwhile, France's foreign minister says European Union nations have just unanimously agreed on a set of sanctions on Russia. All of that coming as the administration has now shifted its rhetoric, as you mentioned, is now referring to the Russian action in Ukraine as an invasion. That sets the table for an increased round of sanctions on the Russian government from the U.S. side. That's a step that the Biden administration has not taken just yet. So we may be about to get some more clarity on that from the president at the White House in a couple of minutes. Those remarks scheduled for 1 p.m. now pushed back a little bit, Kelly. We don't know exactly uh, when the president is going to uh, get started here, but we do know uh, that reporters will be in the room uh, momentarily. So we'll wait for that. And Eamon, if I can, let's dwell on the specific expectations here for just another moment. So so far, the U.S. in some ways has been under some criticism for levying sanctions on Ukraine itself, on those separatist territories that Russia now claims as its own. So what is it that he is likely to announce today that would change fundamentally the nature of what's so far been said? 
Well, we don't know. And, you know, one of the key questions is just how devastating will these sanctions be? That's what the administration has been talking about uh, in terms of the severity of them. And the thing that the president now is going to have to calibrate is that because Putin has done sort of a classic Putin maneuver, which is sort of go into the gray zone, he's mm. moving troops into these separatist regions, but not going beyond where troops have been since 2014. Uh, that threw the administration for a little bit of a loop over the past 24 hours as to whether or not they should even be calling that an invasion, quote unquote. Uh, Putin is sort of the master of the strategy of, of the boiling frog technique. You know, you go a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, and then it's when do you unleash in response the sort of massive consequences that the administration has been talking about. We'll see whether the president's willing to do that here or whether he needs to hold some uh, significant consequences in reserve as a deterrent for any further aggression, right? At some point, once you've spent your deterrent, you've spent it and there's nothing else that you can do. So uh, all of this very tricky strategic maneuvering here for the White House. Yeah, and significantly, the Germans have gone ahead and halted that approval of Nord Stream 2. That's a big step, a somewhat unexpected one at this point as well. Eamon, thank you very much. We'll check back in soon, Eamon Javers. Let's turn in the meantime to Libby Cantrill. She joins us from PIMCO as we ask what this all would mean for the administration. She's managing director and head of public policy there. Libby, what are your expectations and, you know, what's on your mind as this plays out here over the past 24 hours? Yeah, well, good afternoon, Kelly. Well, look, the administration has a lot of tools in their sanctions toolkit. Um, we do expect this to be whatever's to be announced this afternoon or, or tomorrow to be sort of of the, the first tranche uh, in terms of potential sanctions. Uh, sectoral sanctions are a possibility uh, aimed at the financial sector uh, in particular, potentially even the energy sector. Security-based uh, sanctions, similar to what we saw under the Trump administration with the Chinese military uh, and industrial companies. Uh, also, export controls, again, similar to what we saw under the Trump administration as it relates to China. And then potentially a further sanctioning of Russia's sovereign debt uh, as it relates to the secondary market. The administration has already moved forward uh, last spring on the primary market. We could also see additional sanctions on the secondary market. But to be clear, this will be likely a first step. I do, you know, we do expect them to hold some of the more potential punitive measures, dollar clearing, even swift access, secondary sanctions uh, in reserve should we see more escalation in the Ukraine. What's the impact likely to be on the U.S. economy and on the midterms, which the political calculus here <laughs> is as heightened as ever, you know, with that event just a few months away? Yeah, I mean, politically, uh, this could do two things, uh, one positive, one not so positive. I mean, there is there can be a kind of a rallying around the flag effect. We've seen that in other sort of military confrontations where the commander in chief looks tough uh, and is able to sort of consolidate, you know, uh, political support. On the more negative side, though, uh, this this could make the administration's inflation woes even worse uh, as it relates to, of course, uh, oil prices and, and what have you. So sort of a mixed picture politically, probably too early to do a real read through uh, for for the midterm administration and midterm elections and, and probably the same thing for the economy. It really will depend whether this is sort of more short term or whether it's, it's a more longer term protracted uh, engagement. How serious are the steps under consideration that you think the U.S. could take here? Yeah, I mean, the the thing is, short of military invasion here, we are talking about things that are, are relatively incremental, especially given after 2014 and the annexation of Crimea, Russia has really moved to become much more uh, sort of desensitized to uh, to sort of these types of sanctions. Uh, so they, you know, still it will be relatively marginal. Um, 
But clearly, again, they can rack, ratchet up in terms of, sort of how punitive they are. Uh, access to the SWIFT messaging payment system um, is really important. Uh, if, if they were to take that step, that would, well, that would be quite draconian for Russia but also uh, for sort of the international community and then also dollar clearing. Those are probably the two things uh, that would be, you know, sort of viewed as most punitive in our book and then secondary sanctions as well. So, again, we don't expect those, the, the administration to be moving forward with those, uh, at least as of now, but, you know, could be holding them in reserve should, should escalation continue. And what other steps do they have if they, like you said, if those are the ones they're holding in reserve to kind of wait and see what happens are there other options, you know, maybe, I don't know, along the energy front, you know, other tools that we've seen deployed in the past? I mean, what else is in the toolbox? Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the energy uh, sort of sector sanctions are certainly a possibility. I think there will be a real eye, though, on the implication for, of course, European energy prices. Um, but as you said uh, in the beginning, the fact that Germany has now come out and halted uh, the, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, I think really was an indication that sort of Germany is all in here, that Europe is all in on this. Um, and that may you know, give some more flexibility to, to the U.S. in terms of moving forward with those sanctions. Now, of course, military conflict, uh, and everyone has said, sort of said that is a no-go, uh, given that Ukraine is, of course, not a NATO member. But there are other things that the, the U.S. could do in terms of arming uh, Ukrainians, giving more sort of technical military support for them, then also potentially giving some more guarantees to Ukraine than it would uh, to, to other sort of non-NATO uh, folks. So, yeah. again, these are, these are all potentials. And it's all kind of speculation at this point because it really is dependent on what Putin decides to do here. One quick final question. What does it mean for the defense sector, which has been under tremendous internal pressure over the past 10 or 15 years about the amount of spending? It was a big part of the sequestration and the Tea Party. All of the sort of anti-fiscal spending movements that we've seen. Now we have this heightened concern about geopolitical affairs. We have investors looking to the defense stocks trying to figure out if that's a place to be. What would you tell them? Yeah, look, I think this is likely positive uh, just for for defense spending in general. And I think something you're, you're absolutely right that that defense and sort of non-defense discretionary spending were both in the target of this sort of sequestration, these kind of budget cutbacks uh, from years ago. But there has been a pivot in Washington over the last few years. I think there are there's a sort of a recognition on both sides of the aisle that those cutbacks were pretty draconian, uh, that they've had longer term implications in terms of the Pentagon's ability to plan and what have you. So uh, I think that, if, if anything, this is more of a tailwind for increased defense spending. But I don't think that that's necessarily a departure from what's, what's happening right now. We're seeing about, you know, uh, 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 Biden likely asking for about $730 billion for the Pentagon just for next year. So again, a pretty, pretty sizable amount, but this can only help for sure. Yeah, well said. Libby, uh, great to have you here today. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Libby Cantrill with PIMCO. All right. As she mentioned, with all the different sanctions options under consideration right now, let's talk more about the global fallout uh, that we could be facing. With us now is Anya Manuel. She's executive director of the Aspen Strategy Group and former State Department official. Anya, it's great to have you here. And I want to pick up actually on the point Libby made about Germany. It was a pretty big deal to see them so quickly come out and say they're going to suspend approvals for the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. What does that tell you? 
It was great to be here, Kelly. I actually just got back from Germany yesterday. I was at the Munich Security Conference. The Europeans are as united as I've ever seen them on this particular issue. That's not to say perfectly united, but I also was really heartened by the German chancellor coming out today and saying that pipeline, which was about to open and bring gas directly from Russia to Germany is going to be on hold indefinitely, which is a really strong signal to Putin that if he actually really goes into Ukraine in a real way, uh, you know, he's he's woken up NATO. <laughs> he's made the U.S. and Europeans as united as we've seen them in years and years. Right, which a couple of weeks ago, it looked like the opposite might be true. When the U.S. was first talking about suspensions of Nord Stream 2, the Germans did not necessarily uh, underscore that point in quite the same way. So this feels like a little bit of a change in tone that now is having the effect you mentioned. And do you think it's also changed the tone coming out of Russia today? You know, I'm not sure it's possible to deter Vladimir Putin. He is increasingly isolated. He surrounds himself with yes men. Um, some people I talked to this weekend who informally interact with him said, you know, there might be something a little bit off. So I'm not sure how much the international community can do to really deter his actions, but it is impressive. And I think the US government and the European governments and NATO deserve a lot of credit. I think they've been handling this crisis just about as well as we can do so far. Give me the best and worst case scenario for NATO in the, let's say, 10 or so days that we're facing. Yeah, well, it depends a little bit on the best and worst case for Ukraine. You already see these two republics having declared independence, Russia moving in to, quote, support and peacekeep Russian speakers in eastern Ukraine. So Russia now has four options. Just just occupy that territory, it's number one. Two, occupy all of eastern Ukraine, which would be a significant escalation. And then, of course, three or four you could launch air, missile, and cyber attacks on Kiev and other parts of Western Ukraine, or four, you could try to take out um, President Zelensky of Ukraine and install someone who's more uh, Russia positive. Uh, very hard to predict where this leads. I think no matter what happens, you're not going to see NATO forces fighting on behalf of Ukraine. I think every government has been quite clear on that. And there's no appetite. If you look at the opinion polls in the U.S., unfortunately, most Americans can't even find Ukraine on a map. Mm. There's no appetite for going in with American soldiers to support Ukraine. But there is, I think, going to be a lot of supplying of weapons and materiel to ensure that Ukraine can defend itself. And of course, all of those sanctions that Libby mentioned just in the last segment. How does Russia save face here if they do end up backing down uh, in some way, shape or form? Yeah. You know, I don't think they care much about saving face, unfortunately. Uh, one way would be to say, look, I, I just am supporting Donbass and Luhansk, these two breakaway regions, and everything else was just a military exercise. And then wait. That's very much Putin's playbook. Take one step, see what the international reaction is. And once things have settled down, maybe take another step. But ultimately, his goal really seems to be to destabilize Ukraine. And with that unbelievably historically revisionist speech, you know, ultimately reestablish the greater Soviet Union. All right. Eye of the storm. We'll see if we are in it. Anja, Anya, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Anya Manuel joining me from uh, 
Join, uh, joining me as uh, a Rice Hadley Gates. There it is. She found it. Anya, thanks. All right. Markets are just off session lows as we await President Biden's remarks. Let's get out to Bob Bassani. He's down at the New York Stock Exchange with more on this move to the downside, Bob. Yeah, Kelly, you can see that the, the markets had been pricing in some hopes for diplomacy. Take a look at the S&P 500. As word came out, their chances seem to be diminishing for more diplomatic solution. A couple hours ago, we drifted lower. Uh, just remember, we have been in a trading range of about 4,300 to 4,600 in the last few weeks. And yes, that does matter. If you start dropping below 4,300, you'll get the technical people uh, screaming about that. And since no one knows where this is going, technicals become very important in these kinds of situations. A little disturbing is a reversal in two very key markets that we've been watching, and those are both in the commodity spaces. Energy has had an absolute wild ride today. Devin started the day at 9.30 at 58. It's now at 51, now 52 and change. That's about a 10% swing in a matter of four hours. It shows to show you that after pushing these uh, high beta energy stocks up dramatically, 25, 30% in the last few weeks, people aren't quite sure what to do with them at this point. It's not clear how much further you can push them up, maybe take some profits. It, it's a lot of uncertainty. The other important sector also in the commodity space is the metals. Metals have been on fire. The aluminum stocks are just, when was the last time Alcoa was a big market mover? But it's, it has been this year, Arconic, Century Aluminum, all those thought uh, just reversed today. So again, confusion here. New Court Steel stocks also have done generally better uh, in the last few weeks, not as good as the aluminum stocks, but they have all reversed today. So the key point here is the general story has been value stocks, and I'm talking about energy stocks and financial stocks, have been outperforming growth stocks. That's been the mantra for 2022. But if that starts reversing, that value, that second line that you see there, if that starts suddenly dropping as much as the growth stocks, some of the technology recently, then you can get another whoosh down in the market and drop below uh, the, the current levels of the S&P 500 at the 4,300 point. That's the concern. So where are we with the markets right now? The bulls, and there are bulls out there, keep pushing this story uh, that, well, you know, Bob, this is pretty good news somehow because it's going to lessen the chances of a 50 basis point hike. I suppose so, yes, potentially, but uh, an awful lot of damage still being done. Uh, Overall economic growth still strong, but the question is nobody can quite figure out to what extent it might be slowing through all of this that we've seen. Earnings still strong, second and third quarter numbers still very, very high on hopes of the reopening continuing to grow. And of course, I talked this morning about these crazy prices for spring break I saw in Florida, amazing prices for hotel rooms, for food, uh, for virtually everything down there. And the demand was certainly there. Everywhere I went in Florida, Kelly, in the last week and a half, uh, I saw full restaurants and full hotels paying maximum prices. So demand still very, very strong out there. Kelly, back to you. And it's a great psychological point about that sticker shock uh, that people will see. Bob, thank you very much, our Bob Bassani. Okay. Let's turn to bonds now as rates continue to gyrate around a possible Russian invasion against the prospect of these coming rate hikes. Rick Santelli tracking the action as always. Rick? Listen, the geopolitical issues are certainly affecting equities, and it was very interesting listening to Robert. But the Treasury complex you know, it has its own issues. It's called the Federal Reserve. And with regard to whether a 50's on or off the table, very difficult to tell. But if you want to summarize everything going on in Treasuries, just look at 10's minus 2's, under 40 basis points. That flattening is very aggressive today. It's 7 basis points flatter. Listen, if you're going to hold an auction, hold an auction when there's geopolitical forces at work because the flight to safety trade on steroids, we did have a two-year note auction to the tune of $52 billion, kicking off a 
billion of supply this week in fives and sevens yet to come. The auction yield for the two year was 1.553. That's the highest yield at an auction since December of 2019. And it was an A. Demand, no matter which category you looked at, was strong. I'll pick a couple just to give you an idea. 65.6 was the indirect bidders. Those are the ones you really want to pay attention to, all those foreigners. That is the second highest level of indirect bidders since 2009. And the winner by far and away was how empty the buffet table was when those investors got done with all those two-year notes because 15.6% was the dealer percentage. My database goes back 20 years. Couldn't find a smaller percentage of dealer takedown And listen, it's so hard to handicap, Kelly, where the forces are coming from moving markets. But I can tell you this, as important as Ukraine and Russia are to the equity markets, well, the hedging that gets forced into treasuries when you see these big, deep, minus 515-point arrows, along with March 16th coming rather quickly, the perfect storm of selling pushing those yields higher. Back to you. All right, Rick, thank you. And by the way, what's your thought on the dollar amid all of this? Because we have flight to safety pushing it higher on the one hand, and then the way in which the rest of the world's rate hikes are going to play out on the other. Well, I'll tell you what. uh, We don't know how the central banks of the world are going to get the job done or how efficiently they're going to get it done. But inflation or no inflation, I would look for the dollar to remain relatively firm because our central bank is somewhat kind of the first into this raise zone. And it's going to be very important to see how the rest of the globe prices. All right, Rick, thank you. Rick Santelli. Still ahead, we're hitting another angle of the Russia-Ukraine crisis, and that's energy. Crude climbing again after snapping an eight-week winning streak. We'll ask Dan Pickering what impact these tensions could have on oil and nat gas. Plus, how will the Fed handle these? Uh, how will the Fed handle these headlines between Russia and Ukraine? Is a half-point hike completely off the table now, or not? We'll ask Michael Darda from MKM. And as we head to break, take a look at the Dow heat map as we're near session lows. Home Depot and Nike are the biggest laggards. Home Depot's worst earnings decline in at least two decades. The stock down almost 10%. We'll be right back. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. FedEx. 
Welcome back. Check out energy prices all in the green behind me as escalation in Ukraine is sending them higher. Crude's now just a hair off $93 a barrel. These are about the highest levels in seven years with Brent above 96. Net gas up 3% following a 12% jump last week. For more on the impact of all this, let's welcome in Dan Pickering. He's chief investment officer at Pickering Energy Partners. And Dan, you have some nice thoughts here about how you think energy is still a good spot to own, but not necessarily a great one to chase right now. What do you mean by that? Yeah, hi, hi, Kelly. Um, when we look at what's happened, you've got probably five or ten bucks a barrel in crude uh, around this potential for uh, Russia-Ukraine disruption, and uh, and the stocks have had a great run here after a, a month or two or three or four of being the best in the market. And so, feels like we're a little bit full. We need something to happen from a physical supply disruption in, in Russia, and you know, betting on disruption has been a, a tough game for the past decade in the oil markets, whether it's Middle East violence or whatnot. And so uh, to me, it feels like, sure, we could go to 100 bucks a barrel, but we could also go to 80. So the risk rewards kind of come back in here over the last, call it two weeks. How quickly could we go back to 80? Well, if if peace broke out, uh, and I think you could see that in the span of two or three or four days. And so it would be pretty violent, just like we've had a big move up. Uh, peace breaks out, you probably have a market rally, you get some rotation out of uh, the value plays into growth plays. And so, you know, I think it could be, it could happen quickly. Could $80 oil still be supportive for a lot of these stocks to do well? 80 is a fabulous number for energy stocks. And, and we think during the course of 22, we're going to re-rate this whole group. It was the best group last year. I think it'll be the best group this year. Doesn't make it the best trade over the next month, let's say. And so I think we fall to 80 and stabilize there. These stocks take off, but I think they follow the commodity in the near term. Nat gas is even harder than crude. Uh, what would you say for people looking at opportunities in that space? And maybe they're taking the long-term view and saying they like the prospect of the U.S. being a bigger exporter. I think that's the right long-term call for sure. Uh, you know, gas is is sort of cementing its place as the bridge fuel between hydrocarbons and uh, renewables. And so I think global gas is going to be a sort of a big industry for the next 15 or 20 years. U.S. gas is going to be a contributor to that. And so from a long-term perspective, you know, the, the names in the gas industry, I think, have a lot of tailwinds behind them. You've had a run in price there as well. And, and so we won't be uh, we won't be immune to any sort of commodity pullback in the near term, but they're a good place to be. Tell me some of your favorite stocks in the energy space right now. Yeah, so uh, with the caveat, of course, that it feels like we're a little heavy right now. I'm still, I still love the Permian oil producers. Uh, we've talked about them before. You know, the, the Devons and Diamondback energies of the world. Um, I, I like on the gas side, uh, EQT, biggest gas producer in the U.S. Schlumberger uh, is a name that's been talked about frequently on the program today. Um, Schlumberger, to me, is a nice way to play the, the global rebound in oil activity over the next couple of years. And, I mean, it's hard to know because yesterday is different from today with the Russia-Ukraine situation. But how do you expect this to reshape the energy markets for the next possibly decade here? I mean, are these things where we could see, for example, much bigger secular demand for a U.S. LNG? I don't know about what the impact could be in the oil market in particular here. How are you thinking through this? Yeah, I think that we've had a wake-up call over the last six months that we're not weaning ourselves off of fossil fuels anytime soon. You know, this Russia situation is a reminder of how sort of fragile the whole uh, hydrocarbon ecosystem is 
whether it's uh, Iran as a big supplier, Russia as a, a big supplier. The U.S. probably takes even more significance. We're, you know, a very big producer on a global basis of both oil and gas. And so U.S. hydrocarbons ought to, to carry a premium valuation at a minimum because it's unlikely we're going to have these kinds of disruption situations happening here in the U.S. What would happen if we didn't have Russian energy to rely on either on the oil or nat gas side? Prices would be higher. Uh, I, I think the market would find a way in the intermediate term to work around that. There's plenty of global gas. We just got to get it produced and moved around to the right spots. OPEC would step up with incremental barrels. The U.S. would would uh, see higher spending and higher production activity if, if Russia were to be shut out of the markets. I think importantly, though, uh, it's going to be real tough to wean ourselves off of those hydrocarbon supplies in the near term. And with, you know, things like a U.S. midterm election coming up, you know, are we really going to turn off Russian oil uh, and have $5 gasoline in the U.S.? That feels like a stretch to me. It's one of the reasons I'm a little nervous right now. And, and you mean nervous in a bearish way. Yeah, most people are nervous yeah, ner to the nervous, upside. Nervous yeah. that, yeah, nervous that $93 crude goes to $82 crude. Exactly, exactly. Maybe good news for the rest of us. Um, Dan, thank you so much for joining us today. Good to see you. you Dan Pickering you, with Pickering Energy Partners. Coming up, it's not just oil. The other industries that are also at risk of a supply snarl as this crisis escalates, we'll dig into that. And the conflict that could change the Fed's rate plan, whether that half point hike next month, is that really a possibility or not? We'll debate. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Welcome back, everybody. Just off session lows, the Dow is down 546 so far at the low point today. We're down 489 right now, 1.5% declines for the Dow and NASDAQ, about 1.1% for the S&P. J.P. Morgan is out with the list of U.S. companies that have the most and the least geopolitical risk from these rising tensions between Russia and Ukraine. Perhaps no surprise, but oil and gas names, the ones we were just talking about, EOG, Pioneer, Devon, Occidental, Exxon, these could all benefit, although interestingly, they are in the red today. Materials and metals companies, JPM saying Mosaic and CF Industries, they could see upside along with Alcoa, Cleveland Cliffs and U.S. Steel. At least a couple of those names are higher. Alcoa is down almost 5%, as Bob Sani pointed out earlier. Flip side, they say Lind, Arconic and Boeing could be hurt due to direct revenue exposure to this region. And you can see Boeing down four, more than 4% today, so that is weighing on the Dow. And the airlines like Delta, United, American, they have exposure as well. Most of those names are trading lower today. Names like McDonald's and Carnival could take a hit as higher oil and food prices hit consumers. For the full list of stocks with exposure here, you can head over to CNBC.com slash pro. Now to Rahel Solomon for CNBC News Update. Rahel? Hi, Kelly, and here's what's happening at this hour. 
More reactions now to the hate crime convictions of the three men found guilty of killing Ahmaud Arbery. Attorney General Merrick Garland says that the verdict shows the Justice Department's commitment to prosecute hate crimes. Arbery's lawyer, Ben Crump, says that he demands sentences for the three men that reflect the severity of their crimes. U.S. women's soccer players have reached a landmark settlement over equal pay. The U.S. Soccer Federation has agreed to pay $24 million to end a six-year legal battle. Going forward, the Federation is also committing to equal pay for the women's and men's national teams. And in Hong Kong, the government is mandating COVID tests for everyone. This says the city battles its worst outbreak of the coronavirus. Health officials say that hospitals are already at 90% capacity and isolation facilities are full. And on the news tonight, new research suggesting a new round of booster shots may not be needed for a while. That's tonight at 7 Eastern. Kelly? All right, Rahel, thank you very much. Still ahead with the Russia-Ukraine crisis intensifying, is that half-point rate hike next month in doubt? Remember, people are only speculating about whether it could happen in the first place. We'll talk about how this crisis could or could not change the Fed's trajectory and why one economist is saying no recession in 2022. That's next. Welcome back. The Russia-Ukraine crisis weighing on markets and raising some questions about the Fed's rate hike plan. Last week, some on Wall Street thought March could bring a half-point rate hike. But is that now off the table, or could these geopolitical developments force the Fed to move even slower? Joining me now is Michael Darda. He's the chief economist and chief market strategist at MKM Partners. Michael, welcome. What's your response to that question about how fast the Fed can go now? Thanks for having me on, Kelly. Well, as you know, I was never in the 50 basis point camp as a likelihood, at least for the March meeting. I'm not saying it isn't justified. I do think the Fed is falling behind the curve and continues to be behind the curve. Uh, but my view on that is probably right out of the gate, they would be reluctant to go 50 because most likely the market would start building expectations for additional 50s after that. And I'm not sure they want to move that fast, at least, uh, at least initially. Yeah, but I do think they're very much on track. We have to have some kind of completely unexpected shock and not just what we're seeing unfold with a you know barely more than 10% pullback in the S&P 500. That's just not going to be enough to move to the Fed to the sidelines for the March meeting, in my opinion. Where do you think, to put it in, in the following terms, the Fed put is right now? <laughs> uh miles and miles and miles away. We really haven't seen much tightening in credit markets. I don't think you know the Fed minds if the equity market suffers a correction, uh, but overall conditions are still pretty stimulative. Credit spreads have widened a bit, uh, but it really doesn't look like anything if you run the historical chart back. Certainly not like what we were seeing going into that first rate hike in December of 2015. High yield spreads went to almost 1,000 basis points. They're barely above 400 currently. We also had a huge meltdown in industrial metals. That is not happening this time. And I think most importantly, if we look at five-year-ahead inflation expectations, where all of these supply-side shocks should really be out of the system, we're pretty close to 300 basis points today. That's over 100 basis points above the average of the last cycle. We fell below 100 basis points on that indicator going into the December 2015 rate hike. So there's really no comparison between where the Fed is today, which is miles and miles behind the curve, and where they were at the dawn of the last 
tightening cycle, which arguably was a bit premature. Sure. And maybe that's cold comfort uh, to people who think that there could be a, a le- they might take their foot off the gas pedal, so to speak. Now, if there's no real reason for them to do so, how many quarter point hikes do you think they need at this point? Because we're looking, OK, they have seven meetings left this year. That's seven. Now we're looking into next year. If you think they need to get the rate up to, you know, whatever the, the terminal rate is now, two or three percent. Yeah, it's interesting. If you look at the futures markets, the expectation of the terminal policy rate is still below 2%. Hmm. Does that make sense in an environment where five-year expected inflation is more than 100 basis points above where it was in the last cycle? And then in the last cycle, the Fed funds rate topped out at just below 2.5. I don't think so. So I think those longer-term policy rate expectations are going to have to move northward. And I do think that will happen this year as the, as the Fed starts to tighten. But every meeting up 25 basis points, I think, makes sense in terms of you know, where we're headed with the Fed, they may end up getting more aggressive down the line uh, if growth doesn't slow, if inflation stays persistently high. Uh, but at least for this year, I think they're going, they're going to, to start off in a gradual fashion. And then we'll see how things go. No recession this year. I, I don't think you're going to have the kind of Fed tightening that would really put a constraint on this economy, at least for 2022. Uh, we can have a debate about 2023 and 2024, but not a lot of visibility looking out that far at this point. What does it mean if we haven't yet priced in where you think the rate needs to go? What does that mean for stocks in the meantime? Well, I think partly it means more of the same. Um, you know, we do have these geopolitical geopolitical tensions hurting risk markets. But prior to that, really what we had going on was a valuation compression. Uh, and that's due to long-term interest rates moving up. That's typically what happens when inflation is, is high or accelerating. And we have asset classes that are carrying enormous valuations uh, still, but especially coming into the year before this recent route started, mainly high valuation tech, but then some of the other speculative areas from SPACs to, to crypto to meme stocks. So these highly speculative or extremely richly valued areas of the marketplace, I think, are going to continue to be in the crosshairs. More of the same. That is the message for those suffering 80% drops in some of their stocks right now. Michael Darda, thanks very much for joining me today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Michael Darda with MKM Partners. Coming up, if these tensions are enough to cause the Fed to pull back on its hawkish rhetoric, what would that mean for stocks? And what if it doesn't? We'll explore and bring you three names to buy right after this. We're back in a moment. Welcome back, everybody. We're sitting pretty much at session lows right now. Uh, The Dow's down 1.7%. Same for the NASDAQ, the S&P, a little bit less than that. Same for the Russell as well. We're waiting for President Biden. He was originally supposed to speak at the top of the hour. That's been pushed back, obviously. The S&P, by the way, with today's declines, is more than 10% down from its recent highs. So we're talking about a correction here for the market. Uh, All sectors led lower today, discretionary energy and materials. So energy not getting a bid, despite what we're seeing in the oil price. Up next, Russia-Ukraine tensions being blamed for today's dip, but one stock picker says don't forget about the Fed. His plays to weather the volatility are next. During February, we're also celebrating Black History and featuring some of our CNBC Financial Advisor Council members. Here's Lee Baker sharing his advice for future leaders. What would I tell future leaders? I'd tell future leaders three things. First of all, learn to have a sense of humor. 
Because like the old folk used to say, sometimes you're going to need to laugh just to keep from crying. The second thing I'd like to tell future leaders is learn to be comfortable in uncomfortable situations. Because there's going to come a time when you're making a change and people will prefer the status quo. The last thing I'd like to tell future leaders is to remain focused on the opportunity and not the obstacle. Welcome back, everybody. We're at session lows with the Dow down about 590 points right now as tensions between Russia and Ukraine escalate. According to my next guest, that plus Fed hawkishness means volatility is sticking around for the foreseeable future. Joining me now with three names to insulate against the choppiness is David Bonson. He's founder and chief investment officer of the Bonson Group. David, let's start with the names you like and maybe from there extrapolate where, uh, where investors should be a little more wary right now. Well, I mean, we're, you know, perpetually dividend growth investors. And so we want to look to names that we think are going to grow the dividend through geopolitical disruptions like this and through recessionary periods and through any other kind of market cycle. And so those are the types of names we naturally migrate to. This Russia-Ukraine uh, incident is no exception. Yeah, a couple of the names, Walmart, not that controversial, even Exxon. But then you throw Clorox in there, and that one's been a, a tough mm. stock lately. It has. And really, uh, we like to put stocks in front of you that are tough lately, right? <laughs> We're contrarians at heart. It just so happens Walmart had an incredible quarter and great results, and Exxon is up over 100% in recent time. Uh, Clorox is the one that we entered after their earnings results just a couple weeks ago. Uh, we didn't think we'd ever see sub 150 again. It had gotten above 180 and we were able to come in in the 140s and buy a meaningful amount. Uh, Clorox is a very interesting consumer staple. Unlike a lot of the big consumer staple names, Clorox does not fight against private label, white label competition much. They really have a great market share, a very diversified brand portfolio, and yet they've had margin issues like everybody with input prices rising. We think they have a great plan to rise above that, and Clorox is a good valuation story. And in terms of ExxonMobil, you, you like the stock, even though you'd kind of echo, I think, what Dan Pickering said earlier this hour, that the oil price is maybe easily 10 or $20 higher than it should be right now. Oh, I, that's right. But uh, Exxon is making an awful lot of money with $50 oil, let alone $95 oil. Um, the reality is that Exxon cut so much cost out of their cost structure over the last couple years. They continued to pay out their full dividend through all of COVID, even grew the dividend modestly last year. And now we just like what we see in front of it, upstream and downstream. Uh, Exxon has really impressed us with capital discipline. What would you say to people sort of in terms of the, the sequence of events here on the Russia-Ukraine crisis? I don't know if there's any that kind of for you pop to mind as analogous here um, as people just watch stocks go sideways to lower and figure out, you know, what what they need to be thinking about or doing in this environment. Yeah, that latter part I think I can speak to as to what I think investors should do. I wish I could speak to the first part, although if I knew what was going to happen in sequence with Russia, Ukraine, I suspect the White House would want to hear from me. No, <laughs> none of us know. You know, I mean, Vladimir Putin is a very unpredictable person. He has an upper hand here. But the main issue for market participants is what you've said, ongoing volatility. I don't think people are selling today because they know why. 
I think it just has the effect of creating uncertainty, and that's understandable. It's happened a million times throughout market history. It's going to happen a million more, but there's no fundamental reason per se that people are hitting a sell button today. So that's the way we want to view it is to be immune from volatility. Sure. Focusing on dividend growth really helps. What about those, and you know, now we're getting really big picture here, but who worry that the peace dividend from the post-Soviet period is now ending and that that unleashed this kind of massive upside in equities over the past three decades and maybe now we don't get that benefit. Maybe that plays out in reverse. Yeah, if people believe we're going into a whole nother Cold War and that we're going to go back to the terrible returns we got in the 1980s, then um, I guess we could have that discussion. But of course, we actually got very good returns in the 80s and through the 50s and 60s as well. We had one bad decade in the Cold War. Uh, market earnings have never perpetually responded to geopolitical news. Even 9-11 and an actual domestic attack on our soil lasted about six months long in terms of market impact. We have a way of rising above it if you believe in the whole free enterprise story to begin with. I don't think that's what this represents. I think Putin is playing games. He's very good at it and he's going to get something he wants out of this. But no, I do not think we're going back to another Cold War. And if we did, you can't invest into a tail risk like that. It's just impossible to yeah. forecast multi-generational tail risk. Exactly. David, great to have you on today. Thank you so much. Thanks, Kelly. David Bonson. Up next, sticking with the escalating tensions here as markets head towards fresh session lows. The Dow's down 624 right now. We'll drill down on the companies most exposed to potential supply chain snarls in the region and not just energy ones. Also, take a look at the Dow as we watch it sink to now down 635. The Nasdaq is down nearly 2% and the S&P is in correction territory, down more than 10% from its recent highs. Be right back. Welcome back. The supply chain recovery from those COVID-related setbacks could now take longer thanks to what the White House is calling the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Frank Holland has that story and the industry's most at risk. Frank? Well, Kelly, we're talking autos, tech, and manufacturing, all facing potential sourcing issues. Steel prices jumping 2% higher today as the Russia-Ukraine conflict has led to a surge for commodities that are exported. And that includes some pretty big and important commodities for all those industries, aluminum, platinum, and palladium, all of them key for the manufacturing and tech supply chains. Russia produces 6% of the world's aluminum, 7% of the world's nickel, both hitting multi-year highs today and are the most sensitive to the conflict according to supply chain data platform Interos. In 2021, Russian imports to the U.S., they increased 33% from 2019 levels. There are more than 1,100 U.S. firms with key suppliers in Russia. About 17% of those firms have key suppliers in the software, IT, and tech space. Agriculture and manufacturing would also face disruption if an invasion or major sanctions happen, according to Interos. And of course, U.S. freight carriers are also closely watching oil prices and gas prices that could be impacted by this conflict, Kelly. Right. And that's your point, Frank, that this is broader than just, for instance, the energy supply chain. Yeah, absolutely. Um, some of those, uh, you know, metals like palladium and platinum, they're really key for the auto supply chain to make catalytic converters or to, to be put into other uh, tech items. Aluminum, those are used on iPad cases and also stands for computers and things like that. So it's a wide range of industries that will be impacted. Absolutely. Frank Holland tracking the action for us today. Again, even with a lot of the commodities higher, a lot of the stocks themselves in the energy complex, at least, 
aluminum and others still under pressure. That tells you how tough this market is. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.